The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and today I'm joined by Richard Seymour. We'll be talking about the likelihood of Theresa May's Brexit deal passing, the consequences of a no-deal scenario and the nature of the European Union. As always, you can listen to the pod on SoundCloud, iTunes and Acast and you can also follow on Facebook and Twitter. The handle is at PolTheoryOther. If you've been enjoying PTO, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. And if you really like the show, please think about supporting it via Patreon. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a patron, you'll gain access to extended versions of PTO episodes. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Richard Seymour is the author of many books, including The Liberal Defense of Murder, Unhitched, The Trial of Christopher Hitchens, Against Austerity, and most recently, Corbyn, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. He's also a commissioning editor for the journal Salvage, and you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is at Leninology. So as things stand at the moment, it looks quite likely that Theresa May's Brexit deal will be voted down in Parliament. And it's been widely suggested that rather than a second referendum or a general election, that the more plausible scenario is that the deal will be voted through at the second attempt in the context of a, of a run on the pound and, um, you know, a sort of a Project Fear style campaign on behalf of the media and uh, the CBI in the city and, and, and so on. And that the, the threat of a, a no deal Brexit will be used to dis- discipline MPs. However, we've also had um, the recent remarks from Amber Rudd, who's recently returned to the cabinet after her resignation over the Windrush scandal, um, in which she seemed to suggest that the threat of a no deal is a pretty empty one, which might make it harder to corral MPs into voting with the government. What do you think is the most likely outcome at this moment? My intuition is that uh, we'll get a version of uh, May's deal. Um, If it's negotiated by a Labour government, it might be uh, a slightly better version. Uh, If it's negotiated by a harder Brexiteer than May, uh, it might be a a worse version. But that would be where I think the centre of political gravity lies. Um, The thing about it is there are a lot of people saying that um, no deal uh, is the only thing that there's a majority for in the House of Commons. The problem is, of course, that that all rests on the idea that Labour MPs will vote loyally. And I would be surprised if there wasn't a significant faction of Labour MPs willing to break ranks on this. And they're already setting up their excuses, their arguments, uh, their justifications. And of course, the main one is, uh, the main justification is that um, if they don't vote for uh, the government's deal, then it will be no deal, and that will be such a disaster, it'll be worse than anything, and so on. 
so I mean, my take on this is that there, uh, uh, the government has a considerable leverage, not with Europe, but with Westminster. Um, it can offer a lot of pork um, to various constituencies. It can offer a lot of favours. It can twist a lot of arms. Uh, the higher civil service um, has uh, a lot of clout in this too. And one has to remember that if it comes to a no-deal situation, um, the uh, senior civil service probably would, um, many of them would resign rather than try to implement something like that. So I think we'd be facing a situation in which um, uh, the state establishment, um, as much as the um, centre of gravity and the political class, and um, the business establishment would be hard against a no-deal situation. In an article today, Larry Elliott, the Guardian's economics editor, was sort of downplaying the consequences of no deal. And he suggested that, as with the predictions following the referendum uh, and also following Britain's withdrawal from the European exchange rate mechanism in 1992, that the claims that no deal would be catastrophic have been um, overdone. Uh, What's your opinion on that? Well, uh, he would probably be right that the claims are overdone. I mean, I would be surprised if Project Fear had been uh, entirely scrupulous in sticking to um, just the most rigorous estimation of the facts. Um, It's political warfare. They're out to have an effect on people. So, of course, they're going to be exaggerating. Um, That said, uh, we have to be honest, a no-deal Brexit would have a number of effects, some of which could be quite seriously uh, damaging for the current British economy, if it was left as it is. So, for example, um, European uh, finances uh, flow through the city of London, um, and that's, that's helped along by a series of legal um, and political relationships that are embedded in the European Union. If there's no deal, then after Britain's withdrawal next year uh, is completed, then those uh, city banks are thrown into a degree of chaos and the city is already facing uh, a degree of downward trajectory and break up and so on and it's highly likely that elements of the city will break away and drift off to Iceland or Ireland or wherever but um, uh, the the shock would be quite severe and it may be that it would plunge the UK into quite a serious recession and then you have to take into account uh, the uh, effects on trade because, of course, uh, you know Britain will still be uh, a major trading partner with the European Union in or out. Um, it will just have to face uh, higher tariffs. So that will reduce the uh, viability of British exports and, you know, it will result in some job losses. Now, we have to make a distinction. I was talking to an economist about this uh, who uh, pointed out that one of the uh, ways in which uh, the damaging effects of Brexit may not be visible is that quite a lot of uh, the effects that we're expecting to see or, or expecting to happen will be take the form of a reduction in future growth. In other words, over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, right? So there will be a net reduction in growth that would otherwise have been experienced. Now, it's 
It's one thing if you lose a job because you see that damage, you see that loss. But if a job that might have materialized doesn't, well, you don't see it. It just, uh, you know, it's, so it's not visible. The damage isn't visible. So yes, there will be some um, economic consequences in that way. It just might be that they're not experienced as such. And of course, it will be impossible to tell anyway, because the British economy is already pretty weak. Uh, it's already suffering from very low rates of productivity. It's already suffering from, uh, for, for the majority of ordinary people, it's suffering from uh, underemployment, uh, underpay, excessively long working hours. Um, we've already got this terrible housing crisis. So, in a way, um, you know, th there would be quite serious consequences, but, but it would be hard to say uh, to what extent these would actually be visible. And of course, the other point to make is that a lot depends on, you know, uh, what does the government do? I mean, are they just going to sit on their hands and let the banking system crash? Uh, if it's a right-wing government, of course, they will manage it in a right-wing way, in a way that benefits uh, the city, the rich, and so on. But it might be an opportunity, and this is what Larry Elliott and Kostas Lapovitsas are talking about, really. Um, there's an opportunity to fundamentally restructure the economy, because the idea that you want to go back to the economy of 2016, before the Brexit vote, and consider that to be a progressive situation, I mean, that's utterly absurd. Obviously, the economy that's been forged around Britain's relationship with the European Union has to change. Now, that could have happened within European Union membership, but it would have been a fight. So, um, there are going to be some costs, there are going to be some consequences, but there are also going to be some opportunities. That would be my point. There's obviously more discussion regarding uh, the possibility of a, of a second referendum than there has been even previously. So in a blog post you wrote on the People's Vote campaign, you said that while you had sympathy for the political commitments of many people on the march, but you also said that in your view, um, as you put it, the negative character of Remain is constitutive because the EU is not, cannot be, will never be what its left of centre partisans want it to be. Why do you reject the possibility that the EU could be reformed in a progressive direction? And, and doesn't the fact that it seems highly likely that the UK will be getting something like Brexit in name only mean that the Labour leadership ought to be thinking about how to collaborate with allies in Europe to affect change within the bloc? Well, there's a few things to say about this. Um, first of all, as regards the uh, negative character of Remain, um, the obvious question I would like to put to left Remainers is what of the treaties uh, of the European Union do you agree with? Do you approve of? I think it would actually, the answer would not be very extensive. Someone might say, well, the Schengen zone I agree with, but even there you would have to say, qualify it by saying, but you know, it's, it's a pity that it's tied to Fortress Europe. Um, someone might say that they're in favor of the social chapter, but uh, they would also have to say that it's a pity that the social chapter comes with neoliberal uh, competition, state aid law, and so on. Actually, if you look at the, um, the treaties, they're overwhelmingly restrictive in terms of what government, national governments can do with their budgets, uh, with their industrial strategy. They're not really able to have an industrial strategy. They're required to maintain balanced budgets. That's austerity budget, really, for most of Europe. And, I mean, if you want to look at what it would look like to reform the European Union in a progressive direction, 
then I suggest um, have a look at what happened to Syriza, because there was a, a political party that was elected precisely to try this strategy of pursuing a humanitarian uh, agenda. You know, essentially it was a humanitarian bailout. We're going to stop people from killing themselves and dying of starvation and suffering needlessly without medicine. Uh, We're going to have a bailout for our people rather than for the bankers. And it was a very moderate program and it would have involved a minor and moderate restructuring of Greece's debt commitments. It would have involved making Greece's debt commitments payable because the whole point is that through austerity they destroyed the economy so badly that they made sure that the debts would not be payable. And you know that's absolutely characteristic and typical of austerity. So they used debt uh, as an instrument with which to pummel Greece, to force Greece into uh, privatizing most of its um, existing public sector industries, selling off at fire sale prices, cutting pensions. Uh, you know, this is the standard EU agenda. And if it was happening in Latin America, we would res- call it um, the IMF agenda. It would be led by the IMF and it would result in the standard IMF riot. Um, now, in respect of that, can the EU be reformed in a progressive direction? Well, I don't exclude any possibility. I don't foreclose the possibility that some serious mass political struggle could result in a reformed, transformed European Union. I don't think it would become a progressive institution, but it could become less worse than it is. But we have to think seriously, strategically, about the scale of disruption and rupture that would be required to make it happen. I was just reading today's news about the Italian government. I was uh, thinking about writing about this. The Italian government is locked in a battle with the European Commission over its budget. Uh, Now, the Italian government uh, is not a left-wing government by any stretch of the imagination. It's pretty far right. But it has a populist uh, uh, anti-austerity budget. It's mainly anti-austerity for the rich and the middle class, but it has some stops to the poor as well. And it breaches the balanced budget rules of the European Union. And basically the deal is, when you draw, uh, when you draw up your national budget um, on an annual basis, you take it to the European Council. And you have them look it over, and they decide whether it's compatible with your treaty obligations, with your obligation to manage your debt, uh, whether wages are too high if, uh, for example, they they risk uh, driving up inflation um, because they have to be concerned about inflation. That's a a key uh, issue at the heart of the European Union. Uh, They can decide whether or not you're spending too much, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And if you uh, are found uh, to be pursuing an untenable budget within EU rules, you will be told you have to go away and change this, and then come back and we'll approve it. And if you um, don't do that, then you have what has happened to the Italian government. They have been referred by the European Commission to what's known as the, the excessive deficit procedure. And that's going to result in a series of steep and uh, deepening um, fines on a regular basis. Now, the thing about it is, they're not relying just on the fines. If it was just about the fines, the Italian government probably 
uh, wouldn't have much to worry about. It's the way in which this political pressure intersects with financial pressure. In other words, the European Commission will be relying upon the financial markets to punish Italy. And the Italian government is therefore playing, um, you know, a, a, a sort of a playing a game here in the in, in sense that it's, it's trying to avoid uh, a speculative attack on, on Italy, on Italian stocks and so on. Uh, and at the same time, it's trying to weaken the European Commission's position by facing it down on its budget. So we have yet to see what will happen here. It may be that the financial markets don't do anything because they may figure that austerity isn't working. They may figure that um, the Italian government's budget makes uh, some sense, uh, offers something for the rich. They may not be particularly inclined to panic. You know, there may be all sorts of things going on. The Italian economy was already in a very, very, very poor state, and the strategy of Matteo Renzi and the the Italian centrist wasn't working. So, it seems it's possible, uh, and I just say possible. I don't think it's the most likely outcome, but it's possible that this defiance of this type could um, result in a weakening of the European Commission's uh, position. But let's just be realistic about what we're up against. The European Commission has uh, all the power here, or the majority of the power here. It is an unelected civil service bureaucracy, uh, and it runs things on the basis of a rule system, uh, a code devised for Europe's rich, for Europe's investors, for Europe's corporations. And it's completely aloof from democratic decision-making. So when um, Juncker said there can be no democratic decisions against the treaties, he said this during the Greek crisis, uh, he wasn't, you know, as far as he was concerned, he wasn't saying anything particularly controversial. This is a condition of being a member. So it seems to me that uh, if you have a situation where um, in Greece... You have uh, a series of emergency governments. You have a massive political crisis, near insurrection among organized workers and so on. Um, you have governments after uh, f- falling one after the other. Uh, and then you have a sort of uh, a radical left government elected by a fairly big uh, margin coming out of nowhere. And they uh, achieve victory for a referendum against the European Union's settlement. And the European Union still isn't moved by this. That tells you something about how entrenched their resilience is in the face of democratic pressures. And that's the problem with the European Union. It is even less democratic, despite what some silly Remainers say. It is even less democratic than national states. Um, It is far more insulated from the popular will than even uh, the House of Commons. And if you remember, the House of Commons was the institution that managed to take Britain to war against Iraq when there were two million people marching on the streets. So, I mean, that's the structured reality we're up against. It's going to be a hard-fought struggle. Whether we're in or out of the European Union, it's going to be a hard-fought struggle to change the European Union. I suppose some supporters of of a second referendum might perhaps say something like... um... 
you know, Greece is one thing and, and even Italy too. But, yeah. um, you know, if we were to see, say, a Corbyn government and Mélenchon coming to power in France, that that would be a very, very different situation and, and might give the left more leverage continent-wide than, um, than the uh, other examples. Yeah, but the other side of that is, of course, it would up the game uh, and it would up the stakes as far as the European uh, Union, the European Commission is concerned, and it would increase the ferocity of their response. But yes, absolutely right. Get Mélenchon in, get uh, Corbyn in, have governments committed to public ownership, um, uh, extensive subsidies and um, stimulus spending, all of that. Um, would uh, have a, an effect in changing the balance of class forces condensed within the European Union um, because ultimately I think the European Union remains, um, it's got some a logic of its own, but it remains predicated upon the powers, the devolved and delegated powers of its national states. So what happens within national states will make a huge difference to the shape and structure of the European Union, particularly if you get change in the core states, such as uh, France and the United Kingdom. So yeah, um, I think I think I agree with them, and therefore for that reason, I you know I wouldn't rule out um, the plausibility of a strategy of say getting elected, just trying to implement your policies and seeing what happens. But the other thing about that is, is, you know, we have already voted to leave, a majority, a slender majority, but a majority nonetheless voted to leave. I don't exclude the possibility of a second referendum. At this stage, I think it's more likely than it was. I think the problem is that, uh, first of all, it may not win. Um, and second of all, it may win. Right. The problem is, if it doesn't win for a second time, then you strengthen the Brexit right. You say, we managed to see off uh, a coalition of the left and the uh, politically correct liberals for a second time. And the left will have been associated with a, a campaign run by the hard neoliberal centre. Because they haven't learned any lessons. They haven't changed their strategy. They haven't changed their messaging. They're still doing the same bloody thing. If you watch what uh, Our Future, Our Choice and similar sort of uh, astroturfing campaigns have been doing, um, they aren't changing their modus operandi. So I don't see how they can expect to yield a different result. Then the other side of that is... Um, if it does win, it may win with um, a fairly slim majority. And because the fundamental dynamics of the UK population and its opinions on Brexit haven't really changed that much, there has been some marginal shift. Interestingly and importantly, there's been some shift among what you might call the red UKPers, sort of older Labour voters in the North. And that might be enough to make the difference, but it might just be enough to Tip, tip, tip it just over the edge of 50% for Remain. In my opinion, that wouldn't solve anything politically. If all you want to do is to remain in the treaties of the European Union, then of course, yeah, the hell with democracy, the hell with anything else. You know, just uh, force it through. But then I don't see the point uh, in even bothering with a vote in that case. Uh, they should have stuck with their previous line, which was that uh, Parliament is sovereign and uh, it's parliamentary rule, not mob rule. Um, that would at least have had some sort of intellectual coherence and consistency. So there is that. 
And then, of course, you know, uh, if Romain does win, and it re- wins with a, a narrow margin, as I suspect would be likely to be, be the case, it would also in- entail Britain, the UK, entering the European Union or sort of essentially applying to re-enter the European Union with its tail between its legs. And the, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly partisan of Britain or the United Kingdom, but uh, I am partisan of the idea that other things are possible. In other words, that uh, there are alternatives to being uh, members of this or that neoliberal institution. And I think the uh, the gesture of returning to membership of the European Union, terrified out of our wits by the prospect of no deal, would be a fundamentally conservative one. It would just once again reaffirm the idea that there is no alternative. We can't come up with anything better. Um, and that may end up being the case. But then if that is the case, we have to rec- uh, recognize exactly the situation that we're in. We're in such a state of weakness that we ended up being, you know, pushed back into a series of neoliberal treaties. For what? For most of the left, it's so that uh, we can keep on to free movement uh, for white Europeans largely. I mean, I, I don't see what in this set of institutions is worth throwing aside your probity for and giving up all serious rigor and analysis for. Another possible consequence of of a second referendum, if there's a narrow Remain victory, is also what that might do in terms of boosting the far right. Um, How how concerned do you think people should be about that, of the prospects of of, of civil disorder and and anti-migrant violence and and so on? Look, if the second referendum was, in principle, the right thing to do, if it was a fundamental gain for the left then I would say it might be a risk worth taking uh, to strengthen the far right. The problem is I can't see any great uh, benefit from this. All I can see is that people are worried about the economy, which fine, I get that. I wouldn't be dismissive of that at all. If that's your concern, that's a fairly uh, sober, reasonable concern. I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the only issue at stake, and I don't think it's uh, impossible to contend with that, to do anything about it, but I can understand that being a concern. Likewise, I can understand uh, people who think free movement um, is, in principle, a progressive thing, uh, and, you know, the only likely alternative to free movement at this stage is going to be some sort of retreat to, uh, you know, a more narrow form of nationalism, from essentially fortress Europe to fortress UK, as if those two things were in any sense distinct. But um, I think that the consequences of restaging a referendum that's already been had because uh, the European Union didn't like the result, because the pro-EU lot didn't like the result, and because they don't like the consequences of it, and that's the only reason we'd be having another EU referendum. There's no good reason for restaging it um, other than that. Um, uh, all this stuff about, well, the you know uh, Brexit side cheated and so on. Well, yeah, to some extent, the, the, some of that did happen. But that doesn't invalidate the... Or there, thus far, there has been no su- sufficient evidence to de- uh, demonstrate that the scale of cheating and so on would have fundamentally changed the outcome. It doesn't invalidate the referendum result. And those trying to 
invalidate the referendum on that basis, I think, are being ridiculous. So there's a whole series of um, elements of the equation here. I think if there was a massive gain for the left to be had in having another referendum, then I would be in favour of risking sort of strengthening of the far right, uh, because the gains to the left would ensure that we'd be able to uh, strengthen our position and cope with the uh, forward thrust of the far right. We would have more defensive powers in the face of it. Um, the problem is that, as I say, the uh, sort of left Romain crowd want the European Union to be something that it isn't. They want the gains to be something that they're not. They want um, uh, the European Union to be a net progressive institution, and it just isn't that. And they may claim, uh, and I can see how they can uh, say things like this reasonably, that no matter how neoliberal the European Union is, the British state is not better. Well, that's absolutely true. And if the alternative to the European Union is Singapore-style capitalism or Hong Kong capitalism, obviously that's not an improvement. But we are in politics not to choose between options that other people have created for us. We have a left now. We have forces. We have uh, hundreds of thousands of people passively supporting. We have tens of thousands of active uh, people in the left. We've got a labor movement. Uh, there are things that we could do to shape the situation. And if your answer in a situation like this is just, well, we'll just go along with what uh, you know somebody else has um, decided, we'll just accept uh, a pair of options that uh, other people have put on the table rather than fight for something that me, we might prefer, then I think that's a, a, a tragic lapse um, in political initiative and imagination. And it's the kind of logic that has tended to result in the left following the centre into its demise. Um, we've seen this again and again, that kind of um, defensive strategy. So I would uh, be in favour of the left uh, recognising uh, that, you know, all the uh, options are bad, as I've said, uh, whether we stay in, whether we leave with May's terms, whether we leave with no terms. There are different types of problems that come with each one. I would be in favour of the left rigorously working out which of the le options is least worst and which presents the best options, the best opportunities. And that sort of thinking is sadly not very prevalent. There's almost no strategic thinking about the European Union. There's instead a great deal of emotive, moral uh, and almost identitarian thinking about the European Union. Uh, the extent to which a large number of people on the left identify with the European Union is actually bewildering and f rather frightening and sinister. Do you think that that, that view that the only options are a neoliberal EU or Singapore-style capitalism, do you think that flows from a sort of um, a political pessimism derived from uh, a long period of left defeats? Or, or do you think it's more to do with the class position of, uh, of some of the hardline Remainers? Um, yeah, look, um, it's complicated. Um, I think... If you are an academic of any sort in the UK, you're going to be overwhelmingly pro-Remain. 
Why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. One of them uh, is that the higher education sector benefits enormously from uh, the, the British relationship with the European Union. And the sort of circulation of um, students from across Europe within British institutions um, and the fact that uh, these are educated professionals who work in the higher education sector and uh, they live in metropolitan areas by and large, uh, that they, uh, you know, they, they identify with the European Union or at least with a version of the UK that is affiliated with European Union membership, you know, uh, a certain degree of multiculturalism, a certain degree of cosmopolitanism. And, you know, Europeanism is a very popular ideology uh, among those people. I think, for what it's worth, that Europeanism is another form of nationalism. I don't think it's better than British nationalism. Uh, I think uh, that it's different and has different characteristics, but it is nationalism. And I think that if, uh, you know, I mean, if you drill it down a bit and have a look at the kinds of academics who work uh, in anti-racism, it's very interesting that uh, there's just a, a knee-jerk default consensus that uh, leaving the European Union is a bad thing. And it's a bad thing because of racism. Okay, fine. Uh, that's rooted in something real, which is that the reasons for the Brexit vote, largely, not exclusively, but largely, have to do with racism, have to do with anti-immigrant politics, and that's rooted in Britain's history as a colonial empire state. So uh, they have an analysis here, but a very partial one, I must say, and a very narrow kind of focus. And it's, it's, it's a combination of the things that you mentioned, because if you think about it, had the left been uh, a bit more of a significant factor in British politics for a bit longer, there would have been, in 2016, a tradition of analysis, critical analysis of the European Union. There would have been a more serious public discussion of the merits and uh, deficits of belonging to the European Union and its treaties. Um, and we would not have had a debate structured as one between the hard nationalist right and the neoliberal right. So, to some extent, pessimism, uh, as it were, was structured within a very realistic appraisal of the, 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 the relation of forces as they existed in 2016. In 2016, the left was very weak. Corbynism was very weak. It was very tentative. It looked like it could collapse at any moment. And the, um, the Brexit right had been growing in strength uh, for some time. So there's a degree of pessimism that is uh, realistic, that is founded on uh, a realistic appraisal of the balance of political forces, class forces, and so on. There's a degree of pessimism that comes from a certain kind of focus on the politics of race, because if uh, you do have that focus, you can't have any kind of naive, salt-of-the-earth view of the working class. And that can sometimes be taken to the extent of being quite pessimistic about the capacity of white workers to do anything really progressive anyway. Um, and that's my experience. Um, and insofar as white workers are even talked about, they tend to be talked about through the prism of why they're so racist and, you know, the um, psychological wage and all of that stuff. And, you know, it's, it's the 
it's the more vulgar, racially determinist end of a kind of um, privilege analysis or a psychological wage kind of analysis. So that's part of it. Um, then, yeah, you mentioned things like class position. There are a lot of people based in parts of the country that have really strongly benefited from being part of an economy tied to the economies of Central Europe. And those tend to be people in professions linked to the centers of communicative, financial, political, and cultural power. And so, yeah, there's a class position uh, aspect of this, and there's a regional aspect of this. And it's not, you know, it doesn't map straightforwardly north-south, but certainly if you are living in more provincial, more cut-off areas, you were more likely to vote Brexit, you were more likely to have experienced long-term decline in your life chances and so on. So I don't think the answer to the bad arguments of the Romanian camp uh, is to berate them for being middle class or for being pessimistic um, because, uh, you know, I, I, first of all, neither of them is uh, a crime in particular and, neither, and, and pessimism is not necessarily wrong. It's, uh, it depends on, you know, how well-founded it is. All I would say is that we are in a different situation now than we were when the Brexit vote happened. There uh, are presented before us a different constellation of forces. I'm not in favor of a sort of Costas Lapabitsa style, just bullishly declaring that we can do whatever we want with Brexit uh, without regard to the necessary uh, political coalitions and the strategies and so on that would be needed to realize that kind of agenda. And that's one of the reasons why um, I'm not one of those uh, on the left who is arguing vocally for a hard Lexit. Although I think that there are certain you know, possibilities that would come with that, uh, I can see that in order to make that work for the left, it would require the mobilization of political forces and coalitions that currently don't exist. And one would be taking a gamble that one could summon those forces into existence by mounting a challenge against the European Union. And I don't see the materials for that just now. Um, if I was to be proven once again to be wrong, I would, I would be very interested in, in, in seeing how that would go. But at the moment, I think it's not a question of whether you're pessimistic or optimistic. It's a question of in what does your pessimism uh, consist? Um, where do you think the really bad option is? Where do you think um, the least worst option is? And so on. Just going back to, to the, the nature of the, of the EU. So the critique of the European Union, both on the right and, and, and the left, in, in somewhat different ways, um, it, it's often couched in terms of the EU overriding national sovereignty. But in a recent blog post, you argued that, that this is a, a, something of a misconception and that European states and business elites have supported the project precisely because it actually enhances the sovereignty of, uh, of the upper echelons of, of government. Given that members of the Eurozone uh, have ceded control over monetary policy, mm-hmm. and, uh, and accepted the supremacy of the European Court of Justice and so on, th- that 
claim will seem pretty counterintuitive to to a lot of people um, on on both sides well, of I mean, the of the debate. Look, we don't have to um, take an absolutist view of um, sovereignty. I can understand uh, if someone wants to say that there has been some uh, qualification of sovereignty because these powers have been delegated, but the reality is that the um, member states continue to have uh, a strong say in the formation of the policies that they're ruled by. But it's not the elected governments of the member states that are decisive. Uh, rather, it's the executive, uh, in Britain's case, the Crown and Parliament, and the higher reaches of the civil service who are decisive. So that's one thing. The other thing is, of course, if a member state wants to, and of course this is what we're sort of um, debating so feverishly now, of course it can uh, leave, it can uh, sort of break from those treaties. So, I mean, it's, it's not as if it's under occupation. It's not as if uh, the, the state has given up uh, the sovereign uh, legal form, as it were. Um, they continue to exercise their sovereignty in ongoingly affirming their membership of this organization. We just have to recognize that there is um, a difference between, say, uh, a democratic polis, um, uh, sort of the electorate and so on, the state apparatus, the higher reaches of the state apparatus, um, and so on. We have to, in other words, we have to apply a bit of class analysis. What is the difference between, uh, say, the uh, s- sorts of civil servants um, that are negotiating Brexit, like Ollie Robbins, uh, who is a sort of classic uh, Westminster Mandarin, um, who came up through. Uh, the Treasury and then the security establishment and who essentially overlooked uh, or oversaw the Guardian's destruction of documents that had been leaked to them. So, I mean, this was a very effective manoeuvre on his part on behalf of the uh, British state. And he's over there negotiating uh, the Brexit deal. And of course, what does he come back with? Does he come back with um, a, a series of recommendations that would befit uh, the purview of the sort of middle-class right that is very popular within the Conservative Party? Absolutely not. He comes back with a Brexit deal that basically uh, resembles that which would be demanded by the largest factions of capital in uh, the United Kingdom. So he was thinking in terms of what would benefit the largest blocks of capital. Uh, And I don't think it's a a matter of conspiracy. I think it's just a matter of that's what he would regard as being the national interest. So if you look at uh, the uh, sort of ongoing deliberations on policy and so on, you know, in terms of budgetary rules and everything, um, if a nation's civil service wanted to keep its elected governments under control, stop them from overspending, stop them from uh, nationalizing industries and all the rest of it. In the past, you would have had things like, uh, say, Anthony Part, who was the personal private secretary to Tony Benn, 
approach him when he has uh, just been elected um, as part of the Labour government. He's been appointed to the Department of Industry. Uh, he's um, got a mandate to restructure industry, uh, bring about forms of workers' control, uh, uh, all sorts of things. D democratizing in the industry to an extent, um, nationalizing some industries, and so on and so on. And Anthony Park comes to him and says, I trust that you have no intention, Minister, of implementing your manifesto commitment. And, uh, of course, Tony Benn said, I absolutely do. Uh, why would you ask that question? Um, and th there resulted um, a degree of conflict between them with um, Anthony Part, and not, uh, you know, not him alone, but Anthony Part being part of a wider civil service faction linked to the right wing of the Labour Party, the Parliamentary Labour Party, trying to restrain uh, Ben and prevent him from uh, implementing his agenda, and by and large succeeding. So instead of that now, you have uh, civil servants who are able to say, look, if you do this, uh, the European Union, uh, the European Commission uh, and the European Council will look awry at what you've done, and they will talk about uh, extraordinary measures, they will talk about fines, it will hurt the city, it will hurt finance, there will be a speculative attack on the currency, there will be um, a dumping of stocks, uh, you will face a political crisis, uh, you don't want to have that kind of fight at this time. What you want to do is uh, work as best as you can within the rules and then work to change those rules over time by negotiation and dialogue with your European partners. And that's a far more effective uh, way of rooting decision-making power. So you no longer have to have this um, lobbying and trench warfare. You just reroute decision-making power through these closed centers of authority so that uh, the decision proceeds from the state, goes through the European Union's uh, higher bodies, its executive bodies, and comes back as if from afar, as if it's a, a sort of command from God or something. And uh, politicians say, well, you know, we, we tried our best, but we, 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 we didn't really have a choice. The European Union, these are the rules, um, and so on and so on. So... There's a, 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 a part of the answer to your question. The other part of the answer is uh, what I said earlier about defiance, because of course, you know, uh, there are treaties, there are rules, um, but the government is still sovereign. The government still decides what its budget is, right? So the, the government will still pass the budget that it wants to pass, and it can decide whether it wants to take the consequences, uh, you know, in terms of fines and all the rest of it, and uh, the potential for financial backlash, you know, a speculative attack, all the rest of it. But it would face a version of that, any government would, if trying to implement a non-orthodox, non-fiscally austerian agenda, whether inside the European Union or not. The European Union formalizes and entrenches forms of discipline that are already uh, potentially there. They're already there as uh, potencies, as it were, within the national state um, and within its relationships to business and so on. The European Union just gives them uh, that much more strength, that much more cohesion, that much more power. And it strengthens, as I said, the um, higher reaches of each national state. 
Um, and I think it's uh, most realistic to regard, I mean, part of this comes down to how do you theorize the European Union? Do you think it is an autonomous political entity, uh, its own sovereign entity, or do you think it still derives its power and authority from national states? I tend to think the latter. And as such, I tend to think that uh, what's going on here is not that um, sovereignty is being given up, uh, but rather that in uh, it's being pooled in a different kind of uh, institutional format, one that strengthens the higher reaches of the state in each case. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week.